The Daily Rios Digest, August 1st, 2021. Meanwhile, Monday. So this is one of those topics that has been on my to-do list for a while. It's something I was going to do weekly on its own, but then I thought, well, I don't know how much interest this will garner for standalone episodes, or after I start, maybe it won't have as much content as I initially thought, which means it feels like it's a perfect segment for the Daily Rios Digest, maybe as a, a testing grounds, if you will. Most hardcore comic readers know about Stan's Soapbox, a column written by Stan Lee for Marvel Comics that started in the 60s as a way to talk directly to Marvel readers in his very Stan-like way. Now, DC had their own kind of in-house outreach as well, whether it was the Daily Planet Extra Features, Direct Currents, to a lesser lesser degree Bob Rosakis' Ask the Answer Man, My focus, my idea for this Meanwhile Monday that I've been sitting on for a bit uh, will be about Dick Giordano's column called Meanwhile. So as I was doing research for probably one of the Legion Project podcasts, uh, dipping into DC Comics uh, from the 80s, I started to reread Dick Giordano's column. And... You know, I like to look at house ads and I like to see what else is going out, going on throughout the larger DC universe. And I thought, you know, these columns, which are very similar in tone to what Stan Lee did, but obviously in a much less bombastic way, are really kind of interesting little behind the scenes content um, that if you were somebody like I was, I wasn't necessarily reading comic book magazines, right? This was really my only in, outside of letter columns, into the larger DC universe. So I'm looking at these columns and and I start collecting them. I start pulling them digitally or taking pictures of them uh, from the comics themselves. And I don't know, I guess I was just trying to compile them, maybe for some research. And then I started to think, well, I think this would actually make a good episode topic. I went all the way back to try to find the very first column, and then suddenly I was going through month by month as I was pulling older issues or finding things online. And suddenly I have, if not all of them, uh, probably about 80% of these columns. So, of course, that means, okay, I got to do something with them. So that's what this Meanwhile Monday is going to be. It's going to be a way to look at not only Dick Giordano's thoughts about DC during the 80s, early 80s especially, um, but also to maybe look at a little DC history, look at DC's evolution through the 80s um, by way of these columns. Stan Soapbox, you know, that gets a lot of coverage. I think there's even a, a, a research book or two about them. But I hadn't really seen a lot about Meanwhile, so here we go. I'm going to take the chance and just kind of explore and see what happens. Fairly quickly, 
Although it started out as just a monthly feature, I learned that somewhere along the way, there were as many as four different meanwhiles in a given month. And then when DC was branching out into their deluxe line, into the Baxter line, there were meanwhile columns written specifically for those direct books. And then eventually it would just blow up. Um, There would be guest writers. There would eventually it would morph into something called In My Opinion and Johnny DC. We're talking like late 80s, early 90s. So as it tends to happen with other topics, I got interested in this and started to do research. I had to go back to the beginning. And now finally, I'm just going to use the digest format um, as I'm doing with many other topics to just jump in, just do it, just start and see what happens, see what kind of feedback uh, you get. So we start with cover date of February of 1983. So you have to imagine these books that were cover dated February 83 were coming out probably in November of 82, maybe December, which means he had to have uh, composed this first Meanwhile column probably back in, I don't know, September, October, uh, by the time it, you know, for whatever lead time they need. Uh, to get it into books. Uh, This first Meanwhile column shows up in Action Comics 540, Captain Carrot issue 12, DC Comics presents 54, Justice League of America 211, Night Force number 7. It probably also shows up in uh, maybe New Teen Titans 28, Legion of Superheroes 296, Wonder Woman 300, All-Star Squadron 18. These are all the books that are in my collection. I only looked through a handful, but it is the same column within those titles. Now, maybe one of those issues doesn't have it in. So I'm just going to go ahead and read um, the first paragraph and then talk about the larger column. Dick Giordano starts out by saying, being a monthly column... Well, I should say, meanwhile, being a monthly column wherein DC's managing editor holds forth on matters A, close to his heart, B, of little import, C, of great import, D, that he feels like holding forth on, E, none of the above. So that starts us off. He later calls the column a monthly column chock full of choice gossip, important dates and events, just plain chit-chat and other important stuff like that. Apparently the column is based on a suggestion from Julius Schwartz and editorial coordinator uh, Pat Bastien and also Bob Rizakis were in charge of making sure that this column got into comics. Uh, I wanted to quick make a mention of the actual meanwhile design, the, the header logo, because I realized it has the pattern of the background yellow who's who dots. If you know what I'm talking about from the who's who definitive directory for DC Comics, um, it has the same kind of uh, design where it morphs from dots to uh, checks, it almost looks like. And it made me think, okay, is I thought that was a who's who thing, but here it is in 1983. Is this a holdover from some other DC title logo that I'm not thinking of? Because it's not quite the go-go checks of the 1960s, but it could very well be an evolution of that. If you know what the go-go checks are, 
they were the black and white checks that DC put on the top of their covers in the 60s, only for a short period, because they thought it would make them stand out on the racks. So these 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 dots, these morphing dots, um, which you can absolutely see within the Who's Who series, is here on the Meanwhile logo. So this is the first time I noticed that. Now, Dick Giordano is a newly managed, uh, appointed managing editor, which means he had to give up editing the Batman line, which he calls the greatest hero in comics. Len Wein would take over the Batman line, and apparently Giordano took over from Paul Levitz. It's always kind of interesting to see the lineage when it comes to editors, on especially on a major title like that. And eventually it would, I assume, be handed over to Denny O'Neill. Um, there are a couple things in this column that I really like. First of all, this really hit my, my crisis kid heart. Dick writes, You may have heard that DC is planning to publish a maxi-series that will attempt to more neatly define the DC universe in an exciting adventure yarn that will span 12 issues. Tentatively titled The History of the DC Universe, current plans are for the first issue to appear in the spring of 1983. Wow, it actually wouldn't ship until January of 1985. Um, I'm certain Adam and I probably touched on this within the Crisis Tapes at some point or another, but I, I have to go back to the what Dick said about it was originally titled The History of the DC Universe, or one of the early names, because in a recent Legion Project podcast, we are talking about the actual history of the DC Universe, and I made mention that Crisis at one point or, point or another was named that, but then I thought about it and go, no, that's not right. It originally was like DC Universe, Crisis on Infinite Earths, but then no, I was right. There was a point where it was called the history of the DC universe. So also odd to, to uh, again, I'm sure this information came up, but I don't remember everything, that they were thinking it was going to be released as early as spring of 1983. How much, how deep could they really have been in late 1982 when this article was being written that Dick Giordano's thinking, oh yeah, in a couple months, we're just going to get it out. <laughs> especially considering that the Monitor's satellite made its first appearance in New Teen Titans 21, which was, which came out in April of 1982. So yes, if you are if you listen to the Crisis tapes, you know that the Crisis was something that was brewing for a number of years before it actually shipped. Um, but I, don't, I, don't, I just don't remember anyone saying, oh yeah, it was supposed to come out in the spring of 1983. Let me read one more little part uh, connecting to the crisis. Dick writes, fan writer critic Peter Sanderson is now hard at work on researching the project for scripters Marv Wolfman and Len Wein, and it occurs to me that perhaps some of you out there may have a murky DC detail or two you'd like cleared up, explained, or something. Let us hear. Hear? That's cool. Putting, putting the call out to readers and say, hey, what part of our continuity is not so clean for you, not so clear, and maybe we'll use that you know, within the crisis. That's kind of awesome. And then the rest of the column, Dick Giordano goes into plans that DC has for 1983. 
particularly outside of their monthly line. We're talking specials, annuals, maxi-series, mini-series, etc. So this part of the column was actually kind of fun to try to figure out. As he makes lists, I'm like, hmm, I wonder what that is. I wonder what that'll be. Knowing that, you know, sometimes these projects might not actually see the light of day. So during 1983, he said they were going to put out 10 annuals. Everything that came out in 1982 plus a Superman and Firestorm annual, that's fairly self-explanatory. He said three to five miniseries and mentions mentions Dead Man, Adam, and JLA. So I did some research, and the only two Dead Man miniseries that came out in the 80s, the first one was a seven-issue Baxter run, uh, which was Dead Man 1 through 7, but that started in February of 1985, and those were reprints of the old Dead Man stories from Strange Adventures. But then you go to December of 1985, there was a new story, a new Dead Man miniseries, four-issue miniseries, um, by Andrew Helfer and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, John Costanza, Tom Ziuko. So is that the miniseries that was supposed to come out in 1983? Maybe they thought um, they wanted to lay the groundwork for this miniseries because it did change Dead Man a little bit. For the Atom, that's sort of the Atom, issues one through four, which did release in June of 1983. Gil Kane, Jan Strenad, also with John uh, John Costanza and Tom Zuko. Love that miniseries. I talk about it a lot. But what is the JLA miniseries? There is no JLA miniseries. And I thought, is he talking about the Green Arrow miniseries that's coming out? Is he talking about... Uh, a lineup change within the Justice League of America? Uh, Is he referencing the JLA Avengers miniseries, which he does talk about in a little bit? I don't know. Um, Because the the new lineup change, the the JLA Detroit, that didn't happen until JLA Annual 2, which came out in July of 1984. So unless he's talking about the JLA Avengers miniseries, uh, that this is the first time I'm sort of thinking about, hmm, a JLA miniseries. Wow, that's kind of cool. Then Dick mentions five anniversary specials, Legion of Superheroes 300. These are all ones that came out. Adventure Comics 500, which by that point it was a digest format. Detective Comics 526, which was the 500th appearance of the first appearance of Batman. I've never read that issue. Brave and Bull 200, featuring the 16th page preview of the new Batman and Outsiders team. That was also the final issue of that run. And Action Comics 544, which was the 45th anniversary of Superman's first appearance. So all those came out and were, you know, most of those I have in my collection. He mentions three maxi-series. So I did a deep dive and I'm like, hmm... The only one I really came up with was Amethyst, which did start in February of 1983. Now, there are other maxi-series. Now, maybe he's talking about Crisis. I don't know. But again, we're talking about 1983. There are other maxi-series, but he has another um, delineation for that, which I'll get to in a second. He mentions three new monthly titles, one Sword and Sorcery, and two superhero, including an all-new Batman team, which, of course, that was Batman and the Outsiders, which started in May of 1983, so we got that. 
Atari 4 started in October of 1983. That's not quite sword and sorcery, though. That's sci-fi. Um, and then the only one, the only other monthly title that is just a regular newsstand version, um, I was thinking, is he mixing in Amethyst? Did they think it was a, I don't know which, because Arion was already started by this point. Um, now again, it depends on when he's writing. If he's writing it like in the summer of 82, then yeah, he might be referencing Arion. Um, so I don't know what those other monthly titles out. Are. Now, here's the other monthly title section. Three new monthly comics sold on a non-returnable basis. So this is, uh, he does mention, all will be printed offset on Baxter paper. These are titles that were sold directly to comic stores. Two new superhero concepts. Another one, too secret to talk about, he mentions. So, has to be maybe a Mega Man, which started in January of 1983, Thriller started in August of 83, the new Vigilante series started in August, and Infinity Inc. started in December of 1983. So any one of those he might be mentioning, so that's kind of cool. And then two more here, uh, he lists two possible DC Marvel team-ups, JLA Avengers, which is set for the summer of 1983, which of course we never got, not until decades later, and a second Titans X-Men set for Christmas of 83. That was another one that, because JLA Avengers um, tanked, uh, so did the second tit Titans and X-Men. And I believe the second Titans and X-Men was to be done by DC. So possibly Wolfman and Perez, uh, since the first one was, was Chris Claremont and um, Walt Simonson. I do know that Dick writes... Uh, a few columns about what happened with JLA Avengers later on, so I'm looking forward to getting to that. And then the last thing he mentions is the release of our very first graphic novel, which does happen in August of 1983. It's called Star Raiders by Elliot S. Magan, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez again, Tom Orzakowski, David Cody Weiss. And he wanted a possible second or third graphic novel as well, they did do a second graphic novel coming out in December 1983 called Warlords by Steve Skeets, David uh, Wenzel, and John Costanza. Both of those graphic novels I have not read, so I'm looking forward to that. And then he signs it, thank you and good afternoon, which uh, was his standard farewell address. And there you have it, the very first Meanwhile column. I, I think in the future I might talk about more than one column. It depends on how much information is in a column. I'm not reading ahead, so uh, I'm assuming some of these answers about what titles came out in 83. Um, I'm assuming that Dick is going to talk about them later, but uh, I just thought it was fun. I thought it was fun to go back and, and look at that information, especially in hindsight. So let me know if you would like to hear more. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones... Or a steal. 
The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. TV Tuesday. All right, going back to The Walking Dead. I finally started watching season 10. It was released on Netflix not to uh, this week. I talked about Walking Dead a little bit in the first Digest, episode uh, 506. So I managed to watch the first eight episodes up to the mid-season break. So it's kind of interesting. Um, when we lost Rick Grimes in season nine and they jumped six years... It was a little unnerving, right? It was a different cast of characters. It was a much larger cast of characters. There were some new dynamics. Uh, there were some missing stories that had to be filled in. And I don't know, the the majority of season nine left me a little, a little like I wasn't watching The Walking Dead. I was watching a Walking Dead spinoff, which this, this season, though, I felt better overall as it started, right? Um, maybe it's because I'm more comfortable, um, things don't feel so uncertain, um, because everybody is in their different communities and they're not trying to focus on what happened in that six year gap anymore. I do like Alpha, I do like the Whisperers, um, basically in these eight episodes they are slowly in a very methodical way trying to poke at all the communities, whether it's sending waves of guardians which that's what they call the walkers to all the communities to kind of to kind of keep them on constantly on on a on alert and tiring them out um trying to crash through some of their fences poisoning their water things like that i, I like i like what the the conflict that is going on what i don't necessarily like is the super large cast of characters and and the different uh, storylines that are going on because I think some of them are getting lost or just dragging out a little too long. I mean, at one point, Michonne and Judith and Luke are on their way from Hillside to Oceanside, but it takes them four episodes until we see them again because the writers didn't need them, I guess, in those episodes, or maybe one of the actors was unavailable. I don't know. Um, so there's a comfort to this season. There's a buildup to the season that I like. Um, this is the season that lasts 22 episodes because the back half of the season happens during the pandemic. So they couldn't start a new season. So what they did was just extend this season another six episodes. So we'll have to see if that means that this storyline just gets, you know, if they just drag it on. Or hopefully, since most of the seasons have been 16 episodes, they wrap it up and maybe those six episodes are like a, a bridge to the final season. I don't know. If, you, if you're caught up on The Walking Dead, you know. I don't need to know those answers. I'll find out. Um, it's still a little odd to have a show where we get a, a number of scenes between characters that didn't appear until like season five or season six, you know, like Eugene or Rosita or Gabriel. When it's not when it's not Carol or Daryl or even Michonne, when it's not those real early cast of characters, 
Uh, I kind of miss them a little bit, you know? Um, Carol, Daryl, Maggie, who's still not on the show, I mean, and Michonne to a point, those four are like, you know, Walking Dead royalty. I need to see them or else it's not Walking Dead. What else is going on in this season? I mean, like I said, we're still dealing with the Whisperer problem, both from the outside and the inside. Negan is still around. He he made a, he said a line where he's been with this group for eight years. That's just crazy. It's crazy. Um, that's why I think the time jump, I think they time jumped too much. I said, I talked about that before. I mean, the whole reason was just to get Judith to be older. And I like that in this season, they're not focusing on the kids so much so far in these eight episodes, which is good because I didn't like that. We have Aaron who has kind of taken over a main role, uh, doing a lot of dumb stuff here and there. Uh, Lydia, she is the daughter of Alpha, so her loyalties constantly bounce back and forth. Um, I was not necessarily a fan with what they were doing with Sadiq, where he was having this like post-traumatic stress disorder from the attack of the Whisperers uh, at the end of season nine, and then eventually within these eight episodes, they resolve they resolve that um, you know pretty finally. Um, Dante, I knew I knew there was something weird going on with Dante, so that wasn't a surprise. Um, and I do like the buildup that they're trying to push with Carol. Like she's trying to enact her own revenge on Alpha. It's almost like she's become the new uh, Rick, trying to uh, you know go up against Negan, but it's Carol going up against Alpha. And I wish they have. I wish the writers would just let her do what she wants to do, because you know they have to. It has to be dramatic, and there has to be conflict between her and Daryl, but really it's like Carol is strong, and you have these two women that are on odds, uh, on opposite sides, and I hope there's an outcome there, because um, Carol is badass, and she deserves to have um, her revenge, if you want to say. And then the whole thing wraps up, there's a new character named Virgil. Um, who leads Michonne to possibly acquire some weapons on a nearby naval base on an island nearby. And they're hoping that these weapons will destroy this giant horde of walkers that Alpha has. I guess we just have to hold off for that. I have absolutely no idea how much of this is in the comics. I stopped reading Walking Dead with uh, issue number 50. Uh, Again, I don't need to know where the connections are with the comics, because I, I, I'm i sure I'll read them eventually. And season 11 is going to start soon, so I'm trying to power through this season so I can watch season 11 in real time with everybody else. I am not watching Fear the Walking Dead. Um, I may watch that once this is all wrapped up. But um, yeah, I like this season. It's not slow. It's not stretched. It's a little underwhelming, but I, you know, because especially because I'm not as invested in some of these new characters. It's still good, though. I do miss um, the Grimes legacy is barely talked about anymore. We get a few lines here and there. Um, Judith doesn't get much scream time anymore. Uh, You know, it really is Michonne and Daryl and Carol and the King and Aaron. It's like their show now. And everything going on with the walkers, which is pretty interesting here and there. Um, is it still Walking Dead? I don't know. I would love to hear what people think. I mean, it's still, you know, a popular show. 
not that I need them to beat the whole Rick Grimes things, Rick Grimes thing anymore, but uh, it, it has found its new path. I just hope they they explore that path quickly, <laughs> um, because I don't need to be invested in these characters. I don't need deep dives into their past because they're not going to be around for long, you know. So, all right, so I'll watch a bunch more episodes and then come back and talk about The Walking Dead in another digest. Need a podcast talking about weird stuff? Well, then we've got just the thing for you. Into the Weird, a podcast chronicling the madness and magnificence of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age of comics, featuring the voice talents of Mr. Billy Delicious. Hola. Mr. Herman Hellstrom Lowe. Hey there. And straight from the long box of darkness, his infernal majesty Dormammu. How are you? And many more. But wait a minute. You might be thinking, aren't all comics infused with a grain of weirdness? I mean, Reed Richards can stretch every single part of his body, right? And why did Ultron design the vision with working genitalia? Well, you would be correct, but Into the Weird isn't just any regular comic book show, folks. We focus on the really bizarre. Here are a few examples. A sword and sorcery barbarian grown spontaneously from a jar of peanut butter. A duck running for president of the United States. Benjamin Franklin playing hide the sausage with Doctor Strange's girlfriend, Clea. A giant-sized man-thing lamenting the death of a clown. A serial killer obsessed with killing only fools, dressed as cavalier with laser guns after witnessing a priest fornicating. And so much more. So if you like the wonderful weirdness of the Bronze Age from 1970 to 1985, and characters such as Ghost Rider, Morbius, The Defenders, Man-Thing, Son of Satan, Skull the Slayer, Kill Raven, Howard the Duck, and the weird granddaddy of them all, Dr. Stephen Strange, then this is the show for you. ITW's on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and TuneIn. Hit subscribe and join us for a comic-filled jaunt into the weird. New Comics Wednesday. New comic book recommendations for Wednesday, July 28th. Uh, just a few here that might catch your interest uh, or, or things that caught my interest outside of the normal, right? Again, I just like to focus on like first issues, original graphic novels, new works, etc. So Amazing Fantasy one, Amazing Fantasy 1 through 5, this is from Marvel by Kara Andrews. Uh, this is feels like his version of like Avengers Forever, pulling various Marvel characters from very popular times. For instance, Black Widow from her time within the Red Room, a teenage Spider-Man, Captain America during World War II, and putting them together on uh, an island and going from there. <laughs> uh, it, they call it a love letter to your favorite Marvel eras. Plus, you give it the Amazing Fantasy um, title, and it makes me think of a comic that came out through Epic called Amazing High Adventure. I used to always see ads for it, so I don't know if they're trying to tap into the same kind of feel, but that's what I, that's what I thought of. 
That issue is $4.99. From tomorrow's publishing, Comic Book Creator 25 is an in-depth look at the career of Barry Windsor Smith, as well as his new graphic novel, Monsters, the backstory of how that was originally a story for Incredible Hulk, and then it morphed into uh, this 300-page book called Monsters that he had been working on for, you know, a, a decade or more. So that's $9.95. From DC Comics, Icon and Rocket Season 1, Number 1, continuing the release of their Milestone books. From Heavy Metal, Black Beacon 1 of 6. This was a story that was serialized in Heavy Metal sometime around issue 306 by Ryan Lindsay and Sebastian Pires. Uh, so they kind of, uh, let's see, the blurb is, there's an intergalactic space station out there bigger than our solar system where aliens want everyone to come along and meet up. The beacon made it sound like a utopia, but what Nico finds upon her arrival is a lawless expanse where everyone is out for themselves, uh, for themselves, and she's so late she doesn't even have a seat at the table. A story of survival, truth, experience... Uh, lies in front of Nico if she can figure out who to trust and what to do before the secret of her journey catches up with her. And somewhere along the way, someone said it's kind of like heavy metal doing Star Trek. And I looked at a couple of the preview pages and I was like, yeah, this is kind of cool. So check that one out. And then we have Hyper Thick 1 of 3 from Floating World Comics and Steve Aylett, uh for $5.99. This is basically Steve taking um, public domain comics and repurpose, repurposing them into insane, absurd stories. And the more I look at it, the more I'm like, I think this would kind of be overkill and just crazy. But I like that notion. Other creators have done sort of the same thing. Um, it's bizarre. It's wacky. <laughs> uh, and it just looks very experimental. So I thought, yeah, I'll give that a look. And that is $5.99 an issue. Now, I don't have any reviews this time, but I wanted to let people know about some news between Scott Snyder and Comixology, specifically Comixology Originals. So through Snyder's company, Best Jacket Press, he's going to be releasing eight titles exclusively through Comixology and, and I assume Kindle and, you know, if you have a, some whatever the Amazon account that's attached to it. But then, um, so it's all going to be digital, but then it'll show up in print uh, through Dark Horse Comics. Um, the original digital release will be in October. I don't know when the print release will be. Um, this was a way for Snyder to uh, bring together various artists, artists that he's been wanting to work with and to challenge themselves creatively to tell stories that uh, he's been wanting to tell, uh, to be a little experimental, to not have to worry about, you know, is it going to sell? Um, and also he says here, I started to think about the affordability of it and acknowledges that during the pandemic, buying monthly comics might be a luxury that fans can't afford. But for Comixology's $5.99 monthly subscription, readers could check out the books before deciding if they wanted to buy maybe a print collectible version. And then Will Dennis uh, will be the uh, editor overseeing all of the production and publication of the new line of titles. Now, last year, Snyder raised on Kickstarter over $200,000 for the publication of Noctura, 
which is coming out through image. And I have to wonder if maybe uh, some of that money might be seed money for uh, for these eight titles, you know, because he was only asking for like 40,000, I think, and got two over 200,000. Plus, I mean, it's Scott Snyder, and he was writing a lot of popular DC books, Batman and Metal, etc. And they were they are constantly being collected and constantly being mined. I don't know what kind of royalties he gets for like creating certain characters. So um, to launch eight titles with major artists like this, you know, you got to pay him. So he's got he's got money somewhere. So what are the eight titles? We have Barnstormers with art by Tula Lute and colors by Lute and D. Knef, uh, a high-flying adventure romance set just after the First World War. We have a prose story, Book of Evil, with illustrations by Jock, about four young friends growing up in a strange near future where over 90% of the population are born as psychopaths. Canary, with art and colors by Dan Panosian, it's 1891, and a mine collapses into itself. Find out what the dark substance found 666 feet underground is in this horror western. Clear, with art and colors by Francis Manipal, a sci-fi mystery thrill ride into a strange dystopian future where a neurological internet connection is transforming reality. Duck and Cover, with art by Raphael Albuquerque, a manga-influenced teen adventure set in the strange post-apocalyptic America of 1955. Dudley Datsun and the Forever Machine, with art by Jamal Igel and Juan Castro, colors by Chris Sotomayor, a rollicking adventure story about a boy, his dog, and a machine that controls time and space. What could go wrong? Night of the Ghoul, with art and colors by Francesco Francavilla, a dazzling work of horror intercutting between the present-day narrative and the story of a lost horror film. And finally, We Have Demons, with art by Greg Capullo, uh, Jonathan Glapion, colors by Dave McCaig. The conflict between good and evil is about to come to, an, come to a head when a teenage hero embarks on a journey that unveils a secret society, monsters, and mayhem. So there you go. Some of that might look, uh, might sound interesting to you. Go check out some cover preview work. All of this is set to release in October. Tell me his name again. Thanos. I think I shall call him Adam. But return to me again empty-handed, and I will bathe the starways in your blood. Thanks, Dad. Sounds fair. Korvac's power grows, as does his madness. He would have destroyed us all had I not pulled us into the Soul Gem. Then, Thanos, I'm coming for you. After Xandar, you were going to kill my father? You dare to oppose me? You see what he has turned me into? You kill him, I will help you destroy a thousand planets. It's all right, Adam. We're here to help. Just stay cool. Ugh! I don't want to be here! Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Five years and going strong. Every other week, mostly. For all of your Adam Warlock, Thanos, or Marvel Cosmic needs. 
Find it on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available. Resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com Adam Warlock, you cannot keep leaving your philosophy books open on the floor. I always trip on them in the middle of the night on my way to the can. A Thought for Thursday the history of Puerto Rican women within struggle. We go back to, we can go back to 1898, you know, when there were sisters, Lolita Rodriguez del Tio, uh, Mariana Bracetti, who were involved in that struggle. We can, we can go to the Nationalist Party and see the different women that were involved in that struggle. We can go to 1950 and the uprising in Hayuya, and that uprising was led in part by a woman named Blanca Canales. We can bring it up to uh, 1954 and Lolita Lebron, she went into Congress uh, when they were discussing the whole question of Puerto Rico, the whole status of Puerto Rico, and she went into Congress with three brothers and shot up the Congress uh, with her little revolver. And she was a... Little, big old 45. <laughs> <laughs> it was little at all. <laughs> uh, she, was, she was considered one, a little... One did five, five congressmen. She was considered a little, little Puerto Rican lady, you know. Yeah. We have a role to play in the American Revolution because it's one-third here. The nation, we got a stake here. Our parents have sweated here. We have uh, died here so that, that we have a stake here. And for that revolution within the United States, we see ourselves hooking up with, with black people, with Native Amer- Americans, with Asians, and with other Latinos to form a united front as oppressed people to wage against the real enemy. Follow up Friday. So in the last Digest, I did a segment looking back at the first episode, the very first episode of The Daily Rios, as a way to go, okay, what did I talk about back then? Did I do everything I was going to talk about? You know, and as you heard last Digest, uh, there was a list of things that I was like, okay, I need to follow up on that. One of the major ideas that I'm finally getting to is 50 trades of Rios, 50 trades of my collection that I... Uh, wrote on a bunch of slips and pulled out and said, okay, here's the order that I want to, uh, or actually what I was going to do was, you know, pull one randomly out and then I would talk about it and then pull another one and talk about it, etc. Um, so I'm finally going to do that. Um, it was going to be bracketed by the 10 volumes of Why the Last Man. And that's actually where I'm going to start today. Uh, Why the Last Man, Volume 1, finally getting to this trade. I wish I could remember who sent me these trades. I know I have it written down somewhere, but one of the old CGS listeners sent the trades to me. If by some chance you're listening, please let me know. I know I have it in my notes. I just can't find it. Um, And I don't remember which CGS episode talks about, you know, getting getting these books. So, so here I am finally talking about Why the Last Man, right on the heels of it becoming a TV series somewhere. Um, this first volume, the, the very first issue, began in July 2002. So we're almost going on 20 years of Why the Last Man. The first volume collects just the first five issues, which is entitled Unmanned. This is by the creative team of Brian K. Vaughn and Pia Guerra, who are the writer, artists, and co-creators. Jose Marzen Jr., who's the inker, color artist, Pamela Rambo, letterers, Clem Robbins, and covers by J.G. Jones. 
Um, it is so odd to read this issue, which is about a pandemic, during a pandemic. It's also very interesting. One of my other topics this week is about The Walking Dead. Uh, it's also interesting some of the parallels this has with The Walking Dead, even though it came out almost, what, like a, a year and a few months earlier than Walking Dead did? But there are things about government and travel, having to travel long distances. Um, I assume if you're a fan of Walking Dead, not only just for the zombie aspect, but just for that type of genre, and you've never read Why the Last Man, you maybe, maybe you need to, because uh, at least in this first volume, there are a lot of similarities. Now, where the similarities kind of end um, is that... Walking Dead at times feels, oddly enough, a little deeper in what it's trying to say about, I don't know, humanity, the larger conflict, um, the rebuilding of society, etc., etc. Maybe it's because it's been 20 years since this series first started. Um, maybe it's because I'm reading it and I've read a bunch of other things that feel almost exactly like it since then, but... Um, I kind of walked away and said, all right, at least for these first five issues, I'm only talking about the first volume, uh, it feels light. It feels more like, like I'm reading like a Dan Brown novel where it's about situations. It's about a question, right? What if there was only one man left in the entire world because a plague wiped out all the other men, not only men, but mammals, all the other male mammals. So it's trying to answer that question, but it's answering it in a situational way, not necessarily into like a deep character investigative way, um, at least for these first five issues, right? Okay, I, people probably have read it, I, you know, they might say, well, you just got to hold, okay, okay, I, I'll, I'll get there. I'm just talking about these first five, if you have to give this trade to someone, my perception of it was it's more about scenes and it's more about situations and not necessarily about larger ideas just yet. But again, it's only five issues and there are 10 trades. So um, we meet Yorick, the main hero, his sister named Hero, uh, his mother named Jennifer Brown, who's a representative in Congress. Uh, we meet uh, Agent 355 of the Culper Ring, which is like a division of the government. Uh, we, we meet a, a colonel in the West Bank, Dr. Mann in Boston, who is wrapped up into cloning. So that's one thing that this um, world kind of has. On top of being uh, kind of set in reality, there's an underlying thing about cloning, right? Just like The Walking Dead is reality, but there's this underlying thing about zombies, right? Um, no one knows the cause of how this all happened, although we are given options. One of them being that York thinks that... Um, so he, ha he has a girlfriend who's all the way in Australia. He's in New York. And they talk over the phone... And right when this pandemic strikes, um, he's about ready to ask her to marry him. And he said that he found a ring at a magic store. So he thinks he's the cause of this pandemic. Dr. Mann is working in cloning technology, and her nephew is suffering from a disease. So she thought, all right, let me give birth to 
a clone of this nephew so that he could get a transplant or something to do with like bone marrow or something like that. So at the moment of this clone's birth is when this pandemic pandemic happened. Um, I don't know if uh, she said he died, but I don't know if he died at the moment of birth or if that happened later. So did that release something? We don't know. There's this whole notion of what's going on. What did one senator know? Um, he was supposed to have a meeting with the president about 355. Does that have something to do with it? There, um, Agent 355 was in Jordan at the time, coming to the rescue of a woman or trying to rescue this woman who's being chased. And the woman winds up dying, but she has an amulet, amulet of Helene. Is Does that have something to do with it? Uh, so you're giving these options right here in the beginning. I like that. It creates a mystery. I have no idea what's going to happen with it all. We shall see. And if you know why the last man's story, not only is Yorick alive, the only man that's alive, at least for now, but so is this capuchin monkey named Ampersand that he's been taking care of. So why are these two male mammals still alive and why are they in close proximity of each other, right? They were... Why are they the ones, you know, he did say that he was an agoraphobic, but he wasn't completely sealed off from the world. So, so mysteries, right? That's the larger mystery. I like all that stuff. Now, of course, if you have characters named York and Hero and a father that was into Shakespeare and a lot of literature, uh, those names mean something, right? York is uh, a name from Hamlet. Hero could be um, Hero and Leander. Uh, from Greek mythology, so uh, we'll have to see if some of those connections um, make sense later on. And then along the way, we meet some other characters, you know, some other uh, political people, and we meet um, a group called the Amazons, who are more than happy that they're living in a world post-men. Um, there are things going on with the government because there are all these wives, all these widows who... Uh, want to take over for the roles of their husbands, and they are majority Republicans. We find a new president along the, the government food chain, and um, she has to deal with being president of this new world, even though she was, what, the Secretary of Agriculture, I think. So that kind of feels like Battlestar Galactica, right, where the Secretary of Education becomes the president. We meet some other characters along the way, um, that I assume we're going to meet up with again. And then there is Yorick's sister, who uh, is also part of the Amazons. And although she doesn't know it, she is tasked to find this last man. So that's going to be an interesting conf confrontation. It's a story that reminds me of a graphic novel DC put out in the 80s called Me and Joe Priest which is about um, all the men in the world suddenly become barren or, or become infertile. But this priest goes around and gives, uh, goes around to families and winds up impregnating a whole bunch of women so that, you know, there can be more babies. It's an Adam and Eve story, basically. Um, there are some notions of that in this story. It's, I'm very interested to see what they do with the TV series because they're going to have to update a lot of things. Yes, it was 20 years ago, so sentiments are different. Mentality was different back then. Um, some of the things that 
Brian K. Vaughan, some of the things that he writes, some of the dialogue, some of the words that he used, you just can't use those words anymore. Um, it does come across really male-driven, real male point of view, even though it's supposed to be about one male in a world of all women. I was surprised at how... Um, for lack of a better word, how just icky Yorick's dialogue can be at times. Like, very male-centric, um, very egocentric. Um, you know, there's this talk about they're going to throw out the Constitution, and he says, no, you know, how dare you? You can't throw away something that millions of my brothers fought and bled for. And it's like, really? Just brothers? That's it? So things like that. Like, I think they're going to have to update some of that stuff. Um yeah, you can already start to see this. There's no way you could do a direct translation of this story. So so that's it. That's really, you know, uh, uh, it's okay. It's decent. Um, I might have enjoyed it more had I read it as it was coming out or read it, you know, even 10 years earlier. Um, I'm still interested. There are some questions I want answered. Uh, the artwork is fine. It's It's oddly, again, it kind of feels like Charlie Adler doing Walking Dead, where it's not entirely defined, you know, the the characters have, have their own looks, but if you put them all together, you might have a hard time figuring out, wait, who's who? Um, but it's fine, and, and it helps to keep the story lighter in tone, because this could be a real heavy, depressing story, but it's not. And I think that's why, to go back to what I initially said, it feels like an adventure, uh, high adventure, uh, like Dan Brown, like Da Vinci Code, you know, you're going to, you're going to pay the price for your movie ticket, get some popcorn, sit there, watch it. You're going to have some questions that are going to come up and that's going to be cool. Um, and you're going to get a decent story out of it. But, but by the end, you'll probably forget about it maybe within two weeks, you know, um, which is unfair to say because, I don't know, didn't this win some Eisners or everybody was talking about it back then. Um, so I think the idea, the premise, the potential is incredible for this kind of story. The way it was told doesn't live up to where we are now in 2021. So, all right. So there we go. I will return to this again, but um, what I wanted to do with the 50 trades of Rios is bat bounce back and forth. I would do Why the Last Man and then another trade and then go on to volume two of Why the Last Man and then another trade. So uh, I might do that um, just to keep things fresh. So hopefully you enjoyed that little review of Why the Last Man volume one. And, uh, you know, as always, uh, as I close things out here, send me email peter at thedailyrios.com or leave a comment on the website, The Daily Rios. This has been the fourth digest, The Daily Rios, episode 512, for Sunday, August 1st, 2021. Talk to you soon. In one day, half of our world was gone. They were all gone. All except one.